Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. In today's episode, we're looking at Disoriental by Negar Javadi, translated by Tina Cover and published by Europa Editions. Um, this is such a fascinating novel, Kaylin. It's a giant, sprawling history of Iran in the 20th century, which brings us right from uh, the, the very kind of rural uh traditional way of life through this very sophisticated city life um, with various different political revolutions happening, uh, various different members of the intelligentsia taking part in these big political debates. But again, at the heart of it all is one family. Um, and Camilla, who is our narrator, is the youngest daughter. Um, and she takes us on this journey through uh, her parents' engagement with various political regimes and their activism, their eventual having to flee Iran uh, and make a, a perilous journey to Europe where they find themselves in Paris. And then Camilla has to try and find her place within the Europe of the of the 1990s. Um, and she also take, undertakes her own journey around her sexuality. Uh, we learn all about various different family members. It's a big, rich dense book full of footnotes, uh, factual history. Um, it touches upon themes as diverse as homosexuality, fertility, religion. Um, it, it has everything in it. And uh, Negar is a, is a screenwriter and she does something so clever with the structure of this book in terms of allowing all of these themes to flow together in a way that could be difficult or jarring in the hands of a lesser writer, but it's all woven together with such skill that we are able to follow this incredibly rich story. It, it feels like a novel twice its length, but it's not. And it's all told with great economy um, and just was had so many fascinating insights for me as somebody who has become a little bit aware of the politics and history of Iran through reading other novelists and uh, other works on the region. But it really brought home to me, and I think it'll bring home to many readers, our tendency in the West to just homogenise Middle Eastern culture. Um, and it's a real plea for the importance of history um, and the importance of detail and how any loss of detail can lead to a loss of empathy or understanding. Um, a really absorbing work. I'm really excited to hear more about this book. I was actually in Iran uh, years ago and I remember interviewing uh, an Iranian female rapper and I think that there's so much that is is unknown that people don't realise about Iran and everyone seems to have an opinion on it in some ways politically, but uh, it was really interesting to be there and meet so many wonderful people. So mm. definitely 
interested uh, to hear more about this book, so I'm going to read this extract. As the lunch preparations began to shape up, someone turned on the TV to a Russian channel that was showing the Olympic Games from Moscow. Withdrawn into itself like a newborn, Iran had better things to do than broadcast these controversial games. Truth be told, the boycotting of them by the Americans, as well as dozens of other countries on the heels of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, meant that these Olympics weren't very interesting. But the proximity of the USSR to this part of Mazandaran and the ability to get their channels on TV was entertaining. It accentuated the isolation of this house, making us feel like we were living in a secret, special place, a no-man's land forgotten by the gods. Everything made me happy. I was living in a sunshine-drenched western, and the pure joy of childhood was flowing brightly through me again, soaking into every cell of my body. I jumped on the couches, in the gaps between the languid arms and entangled legs of the teenagers, making fun of their goofy faces and protestations. I clowned around, I laughed loudly, I climbed up the walls and touched the ceiling, I hung from the treetops and stretched my hands towards the sky, until one day I landed next to Lely. Look now at her face framed by the masses of her curly hair and her dry lips, which have just pressed themselves to my ear and murmured in French so that no one else will understand. That's enough now. Really, you have to stop. Everyone will think you're a lesbian. So again, I just think it gives us so many surprising little snapshots and it's never as a book divorced from that wider tapestry of history. You know, even the the references to Afghanistan, the USSR, and then the very separate existence within this this rural household in this region, Mazandaran, which many readers will probably have never heard of, but it's over, you know, 9,000 square kilometres. It's it's vast. It's a huge part of the world. Um, and I think that she just juxtaposes all of these things so cleverly um, while giving us that kind of moment, that little shock at the end, you know, the notion of this young girl discovering in, in a state of blissful innocence how she is perceived and flagging for us the difficulties that will cause her within the family unit and in her life to follow. I think like so many of the books that we've discussed, you know, the, those intimate spaces, those personal relationships are a sort of arena in which politics play out and a very interesting way to bring new insight uh, to those political realities. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your conversation, um, which we'll listen to now. Um, thank you so much both for being here. Um, I have been so eager to talk about this book. Of When I got the books, this was the first one that I read because I just thought, my goodness, this is a book to get lost in. Um, it's such a wonderful, rich um, absorbing book uh, and I didn't want it to end Nagar <laughs> I wanted uh, even though this is a world with a lot of pain um, and a lot of trauma uh, I wanted to stay in this world because you managed to uh, you managed to bring in so many different contemporary world issues um, and yet it never feels laboured. It never feels heavy. Um, I have been starting off all these interviews by thinking about the books 
as a series, uh, the 10 books that have been chosen and shortlisted for this award. And I've been thinking about the various different themes that have been addressed in a number of the books. Um, And it's interesting to see where the crossovers are. And there have are a number of books in the series that have explorations of identity and heredity and place. Um, And I'd love you to talk a little bit, Negar, um, about how you approach it approach these ideas in disoriental okay it's okay for you to know you can translate yeah thank you i I, I will do my best (laughs) (laughs) your best i know your best it's it's okay your best Uh um uh, the the globalement le thème principal c'est la mémoire donc c'est la mémoire qu'on a en soi des événements passés. Et euh, du coup, je, il n'y a pas été très difficile pour moi de brasser à travers le thème de la mémoire tous les autres thèmes qui soient les thèmes de l'identité, le thème de l'héritage, le thème de, de la transmission. Euh, et c'était en fait une manière pour moi, à travers la mémoire, euh, de montrer aussi à quel point tout ça est mouvant, tout ça bouge, selon euh, le moment, euh, l'âge qu'on a, l'endroit où on se place, le, les voyages qu'on fait. I let Tina translate. Yeah. Um, so the overall theme of the, of the book is memory, uh, one's own memory and conception of the past. Uh, and it was difficult at first to work in these other themes of identity and heritage through the main theme of memory, um, particularly um, because that changes depending on age uh, and where a person is in life. C'est tout ou j'ai manqué quelque chose? Non, c'est en fait le thème de la mémoire englobe tous ces thèmes. So the theme of memory encompasses all of these other sub-themes. Absolutely. And it does really bind the book together. And there's a real sense in the book, I think, Negar, of the fact that memory is is doubtful at times. It changes. Um, people's stories are different from, from age to age and depending on the era in which they find themselves. And I think one of the lovely contrasts in the book is the story of, of, of Sadiq's story of his own sexuality um, and the tragedy uh, around his having to hide that identity. Um, and, and the contrast between that and Camilla's ability, although it is painful and difficult, to to transcend that. Can you talk to us a little bit about how personal identity is addressed in the book um, within the framework of uh, this Iran that is changing constantly? Yes, of course. Uh, le, la culture iranienne est une culture qui... De qui n'inclut pas l'individu. C'est une culture qui est globale, familiale. Donc, il y a des groupes de gens et on fait partie de ce groupe. Et à l'intérieur de ce groupe, on utilise les codes de ce groupe. Et l'individu en tant que tel n'existe pas. Donc, quelque chose comme l'homosexualité ne peut pas vivre tout simplement parce qu'en se disant homosexuel, on est différent. Donc, on se détache 
de ce groupe. Et ce n'est pas possible. Donc, euh, d'ailleurs, toujours aujourd'hui, dans l'Iran d'aujourd'hui, ce n'est pas possible. On fait partie d'une famille. Euh, I let you translate, Tina, and I'm going to yeah. start again. So, um, Iranian culture is very much collective. It's about the group and about the family, um, not about the individual. Um, and so a person is part of a group, part of a family. Uh, and when it comes to something like sexuality, um, if you, if you uh, identify as, as homosexual, you simply can't do that in Iran because that means detaching yourself from the group and from the family. That's such that's such an interesting concept. And I, I really was fascinated, Negar, throughout the book um, by the ideas of how homosexuality in a way is had been historically accepted as long as it was kept a private issue. But that that's public speaking about it moves the person into that realm of the individual. Um, and I think it's so interesting to contrast that with the dynamic that's described in 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 France, in contemporary France, where some individual liberties are, are much easier to talk about, but others um, in terms of things like the fertility treatment aspect of the book are much more difficult. Um, I was I was fascinated by the way that the contemporary fertility system privileges the heterosexual family unit. Is is that still the case in contemporary yeah, France? It is, it is, absolutely. Euh, c'est vrai que l'homosexualité est en France, c'est-à-dire l'individu, la liberté individuelle est une liberté fondamentale en France. D'ailleurs, c'est une société qui est très individualiste, la société française. Il y a beaucoup moins de familles euh, que même dans le reste de l'Europe. Euh, c'est une société qui se base sur l'individu, la volonté et les choix de l'individu. Mais, comme vous venez de le dire, en même temps, le fait... Euh, de, de vouloir des enfants en tant que couple homosexuel est très très mal vu dans la mesure où il y a cette histoire de filiation qui vient un peu parasiter tout ça Donc, mais d'autre part aussi il ne faut pas oublier que la sécurité sociale en France de... Tina ça va Je... oui, oui ça va en France rembourse tout ça donc vous ne payez rien absolument rien si vous allez pour faire une insémination artificielle. Et de fait, du coup, toute la société, d'une certaine manière, a son mot à dire sur cette histoire de l'insémination, puisque c'est enfin, l'État qui paye. Donc, les individus ne payant pas eux-mêmes, ils ne peuvent pas bénéficier d'un système privé qui serait beaucoup plus facile, comme par exemple en Hollande ou en Belgique ou dans les autres pays d'Europe. Uh, okay, so um, France is very much all about uh, individual freedom and liberty, um, individual will and individual choice. That's a fundamental tenet of French society. Um, that being said, the uh, the artificial insemination process in France is paid for publicly. Uh, so it's paid for by, by taxes and the government, which means that everyone has an opinion about it uh, all of a sudden. And um, because it's public, they feel like they have the right to form an opinion. 
Whereas in other places uh, where it's privately paid for, it would be perhaps a lot easier. That's so interesting. Um, and I'm interested in what you say, Nagar, about this idea of, of global societies versus individual societies as well, because I think that um, there is a kind of individualism, um, a philosophy that has come, I think, via the United States of the rights of the individual, which seems very, um, which seems to be taken to its most negative extremes at times uh, at the moment. Um, And do do you find that uh, in terms of the contrast between, I think, what is a much misunderstood Middle Eastern culture and an Iranian culture um, and the culture of the West, do you find that there is a, a, a lot of misunderstanding there? Oui, en effet, je pense que euh, on est, on n'est pas, on n'arrive pas à se comprendre aussi parce que euh, les, 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 la, la culture occidentale ne connaît pas la culture orientale et, et son regard sur la culture orientale est un regard malheureusement qui reste encore un regard de colonisation euh, et de fait, en fait, ce regard est un peu biaisé par les colonies par la colonisation et n'arrive pas à se débarrasser de ça pour regarder la culture orientale pour ce qu'elle est. Et l'autre problème, c'est qu'il y a la politique qui vient se mêler à ça. Et comme l'Orient a toujours été un endroit très chahuté, il y a la guerre entre les Israéliens et les Palestiniens et il y a toute cette guerre qui, est, qui sont là, qui sont tout autour, ça empêche d'avoir une vision beaucoup plus simple et beaucoup moins guerrière De, 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 de ces cultures en fait il y a ces deux problèmes d'un côté la colonisation et de l'autre côté le fait que la politique et euh, la religion et tout ça vient totalement brouiller la vision qu'on peut avoir de l'Orient et l'envie même d'avoir cette vision de l'Orient parce que d'une certaine manière toutes ces guerres ne donnent pas du tout envie de regarder ces pays et de les comprendre ah, ok so, uh, Western and Eastern cultures really cannot understand each other. Um, And the West in particular does not understand the East, uh, partly because it's still seen through the lens of colonization, um, which creates a bias uh, of of the West toward the East. Um, And people are unable in the West to keep themselves from viewing the East through this lens of colonization and to see the East as it really is. Um, And also there's become a political uh, aspect to perception, um, particularly with all these wars that are happening in the the East, um, the war between Israel and Palestine, for example, which again prevents people in the West from seeing the East as it really is. Um, and so those are the two main problems you have. You have colonization and the legacy of that, and you have um, politics and war, uh, which not only keep uh, Westerners from understanding the cultures of the East, but even negatively affect their desire to understand the cultures of the East. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that I think this book does so well, that Disoriental does so well, is to... Um, you know, undercut the general reader's 
sense of the Middle East as a homogenous place, as a place with one culture uh, and, and one way of understanding. And uh, there's a wonderful piece early in the book, a footnote that talks about the region of, of Mazandaran and excuse my pronunciation, but the, oh, it's, that's fine. it's vast, it's huge, you know, coming from tiny Ireland, you know, these, <laughs> these places and spaces and these cultures and these histories are so rich and different. Um, and, and I, I was so um, absorbed by the the history of Iran that you share with us and the generosity of that act as well. Um, and what made you feel the need at this moment, Nigar, to, to share that history in this detail with readers? L'envie est, 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 est venue en fait du fait que cette, euh, le, le, ce qu'on connaît de mieux de, de, de l'histoire de l'Iran aujourd'hui, c'est la révolution de 79. Et cette révolution qui est, ça fait 40 ans et il y a toute une génération qui n'a pas connu l'Iran d'avant. Et cette révolution est un, point, est un point assez problématique puisque à partir de ce moment-là, le monde a changé et même l'Occident a changé. Tous les problèmes qu'on a, beaucoup des problèmes qu'on a aujourd'hui, et même le 11 septembre, sont liés à cette date. Donc, je voulais expliquer en fait qu'est-ce qui s'était passé, parce que c'est très important de comprendre que c'est un régime politique, ce n'est pas la volonté d'un peuple. Il s'est passé des choses qui font que ce régime est arrivé. Il s'est passé des choses en 1953, au moment du coup d'état de Mossadegh. Il s'est passé des choses avant, quand la famille Pahlavi est arrivée au pouvoir. Et c'est la somme de tout ça qui nous a menés à cette révolution. Et c'est ça que je voulais en fait expliquer et de montrer que ce n'était pas la religion qui avait conduit, mais la politique. La partie la plus connue de l'histoire iranienne est la révolution de 1979. Et c'est ce qui a fait que Negar expliquer plus sur l'histoire history parce que l'Iran a changé complètement at the time of the revolution and there's it was 40 years ago so there's a whole generation now that that doesn't know anything about Iran the way it was before um and they don't know that uh there were a, a whole train of events leading up to that revolution as well there was 1953 uh with Mossadegh and um is all of the these events led to this to this revolution and things that have happened since then are linked to it as well, like September 11th. Um, and it's important to understand that the people of Iran didn't, didn't choose this revolution, didn't want it. Um, it was all political. The, the choices weren't religious, it was a political uh, revolution. And so she wanted to, had a, a deep desire to explain that it's more complex than just the revolution. And, and I found reading this book that it is such a plea and makes such a case for the importance of world history um, and how you cannot divorce the things that happen 
in Iran, from the things that happen in contemporary France, from the things that are happening all over the world. Um, and I, for one, I am convinced. <laughs> I am convinced by the importance of these things. Um, but it, I, I, talking again about ideas of history and legacy and the family, um, I mean, there is so there is so much sadness to this story and the the wonderful. Uh, passionate relationship between Darius and Sarah uh, is is so beautifully wrought throughout the book and so beautifully explained through the eyes of their children um, and it's a their passion for politics is something that that shapes the family but also tears it apart and and leaves the children although the children have such great love and respect for the parents but leaves them with their own inherited trauma and I think we're only beginning to understand now across the world about how inherited trauma shapes the following generations, who, of course, in the case of these characters, are alive in contemporary France and interacting. Do you think, Nagar, that there is enough recognition of, of how that trauma has been handed down and how it affects current generations? Non, d'ailleurs, je pense que vous avez aussi un exemple euh, qui, qui nous a marqué tous aussi bien euh, en Orient qu'en France, c'est l'Irlande du Nord et l'Irlande du Sud. C'est-à-dire, on a toutes ces, toutes ces générations qui suivent ces guerres et qui sont totalement euh, façonnées par ces guerres. Et donc, ils, ils doivent vivre avec quelque chose qui, qui s'éloigne et il n'en reste que des que cette mémoire en fait et c'est un peu comme la seconde guerre mondiale avec la Shoah et, et tous les juifs donc on ne reconnaît pas assez et on ne, on ne sait pas c'est vrai, on ne sait pas à quel point euh, ce qu'on a vécu par exemple moi sous la révolution peut euh, marquer un caractère que ça soit en bien ou en mal et pas forcément en bien c'est à dire par exemple moi dans ma famille euh, la, la, la génération, la mienne, ma sœur, euh, ma sœur par exemple est très détachée de la politique, elle ne veut pas en entendre parler. Euh, moi je suis un peu détachée euh, par rapport aux, euh, aux émotions, aux sentiments, à cette passion dont vous parliez, qu'avaient mes parents, mais, mais le mot même de passion est quelque chose que j'aime pas trop. Donc, c'est parfois des toutes petites choses. Ce n'est pas forcément très, très grand. Ce n'est pas forcément des traumatismes qui empêchent de vivre. Mais en tout cas, ça façonne et ça véhicule et ça raconte une histoire. So, what, another example of the sort of trauma that is spoken about in, in Disoriental is uh, the case of, um, of nor uh, Northern and Southern Ireland, where you have this whole generation that's come up following the war and are fascinated by it and living with it. Um, they, it's some, somewhat like World War II and the Holocaust, um, revolution and violent events like that can make a definite mark on a person's character. And that can be for good or bad. Uh, they aren't necessarily uh, things that keep you from living your life, but they're small things. And an example of this in Negar's own family is that her sister uh, keeps herself very detached from politics. She doesn't want to talk about politics or hear about politics. Uh, and for Negar herself, she is uncomfortable with strong emotion. Uh, and so these are small uh, changes that have, you know, affected them, not, not kept them from living full lives, but certainly made marks on their 
characters. Yes. So there are kind of modes of self-protection that that we engage in in the wake of trauma. Um, And when you mention Northern Ireland, it brings me on to another subject I'm eager to talk about, which is which is music. Uh, in the book, which is so important. And there is a moment where Camilla writes uh, the lyrics to Sunday, Bloody Sunday by you 2 into a journal. And I'm always keen to find the Irish connection. Um, do you share Camilla's love of music yourself, Nagar? Um, yeah, I do. I do. Not uh, exactly like Kimia because she really, she, she, she's a DJ too, yes. but yeah. I'm listening a lot of music, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. And I, I, I found myself making a playlist to go at the books, you know, starting with The Cure and moving through a number of different wonderful <laughs> Very bands. English, very yeah. Irish English. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but to, again, to talk a little bit about Camilla and her journey, um, I found one of the most fascinating aspects of the book for somebody who has never lived for very long in another country or another culture um, was the acts of translation that she has to engage in to find her way in French culture. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, oui, en fait, ça c'est une ça c'est une notion qui est assez euh, qui est assez euh, intéressante parce qu'en fait, on est quand on est quelque part et quand on part ailleurs, on se transporte ailleurs. Mais on ne sait jamais quelle part de soi on a droit de l'autre côté. C'est-à-dire, on n'a pas droit à sa langue, puisque la langue n'est plus parlée. On n'a pas droit exactement à son prénom, puisque ce n'est pas prononcé de la même manière. Et en fait, c'est un peu comme un texte. On est un peu comme un livre qui, est, qui existe avec le même nombre de pages et de mots, mais qui passe dans une autre langue. Et on doit se transposer, on doit se traduire des parties de soi, pas tout soi, mais des parties de soi dans une autre culture pour pouvoir vivre, parce que sinon, ce n'est pas possible. On ne peut pas être le même, aller ailleurs et vivre. Et ça, c'est quelque chose qui donne, qui interroge, et qui, parce que ça interroge sur qu'est-ce qu'on perd et sur qu'est-ce qu'on garde. Et chacun a sa réponse, et on ne garde pas les mêmes choses, et on ne perd pas les mêmes choses, les uns et les autres. Quand vous êtes dans un endroit et que vous allez you, you transport yourself, um, but you leave certain things behind and you come to believe that you sort of, you become confused about what you have a right to from your new self and your old self. For example, you might feel like you don't have a right to your, your same first name because it's pronounced differently in your new country. Um, it's like a book. Um, it has the same number of pages you still exist, but it's written in a different language and you can't be the same uh, once you've, once you've been, it's like a translation. And you, once, once you've been translated, you, you can't be the same. Um, and the question becomes, what do you lose? Uh, what do you gain? And obviously that question is answered differently by every individual. It's a very individual perception. And I think what one of the great sadnesses in the book is that the the culture that gives Camilla the liberty to be who she is in terms of her identity 
um, also kind of sunders her, tears her apart to some extent from her family. Um, so I think that what you do wonderfully in the book is represent those, you know, there, there are benefits, but yes, the losses of that translation. Um, and I think it's very, very keenly felt um, in the later parts of the book, but I won't spoil any of that for the readers. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, Tina, thank you so much for, for translating so beautifully um, for, for all of our listeners. And I'd love to ask you a few questions as well as, as the translator of the book. Um, I mean, it's such a lively tapestry of a book. Um, was this your first foray into Iranian culture and what was it in particular that drew you to this book? Actually, it was, yes, it was my first real kind of peek behind the curtain, you know, because as an American, I ha have been, you know, subjected to the same kind of, um, op you know, opacity of perspective as, as we were talking about earlier. It wasn't anything I grew up knowing anything about. So it was, it felt like a, a real privilege to be given this intimate look um, at another culture and, you know, not from some, um, you know, uh, you know, wide ranging nonfiction text, but it felt like a deeply personal, um, you know, glimpse into a family and into a, a, a larger culture. And I came to feel very close not just to the family in the book, but I came to feel very protective myself of the of, of the Iranian culture and to feel almost a personal sense of loss about everything that has been taken away from, from the Iranians over the years. Um, so as soon as I was given the great privilege of translating the book by Europa Editions, the publisher, I just knew instantly that um, that this was a real gift and that it would make me grow and change and I think it, it it did do that and I think it does that for anyone who reads it. Mm, yeah it's a book that really forces us to make space for the complexities of history isn't it and and and, and that that really drives home that if if any of these little details are lost the picture can never be whole and can never be understood um, and I think you know one of the reasons why it gripped me from the outset is that Kimia's voice is so singular so engaging it, it, there's such an authoritative tone to it and a confidence but yet also that vulnerability um, and that sense of the the after effects of trauma and suffering and a self-awareness around the effects of that that are explored so well throughout um, and what were you know what were the challenges of channeling that voice Tina for you? Well disoriental is really every translator's dream because the characters are so vividly drawn and everything is so uh, beautifully portrayed with such realness and depth that it's easy to get swept along in that wave yourself. The channeling of the, of the emotion, um, you know, and of the complexity of the, the, the growth and the loss and the change that that Kimia and her family go through, you know, they they be, they become they become very personal, and so it it wasn't hard at all really to kind of bring that out because I was in English because I was sort of feeling it myself really, you know. I think it's a book that really really gets inside you um, as a reader and as a translator. We are obviously reading as closely as one can possibly read any text, 
So it just became part of me. I felt like it was my story too, a little bit. At the end. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, and Nagar, just a couple of last questions for you before we finish up. Um, the first one is I'd love to ask you a little bit um, about your background as a screenwriter uh, and how you brought that to bear on the, the containment of such a, a, a wonderful, rich and large story. En fait, le, je pense que la, le, ce, qui, ce que écrire des scénarios permet quand on est auteur de romans, c'est de pouvoir, un, d'une part, euh, décrire les personnages en, en essayant de les rendre, parce que quand on écrit pour le cinéma, il faut visualiser les personnages. Donc, en essayant de les rendre visuels, d'une certaine manière, de, 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 les, de les montrer aux gens, de, de faire un quelque chose de tellement global que les gens peuvent voir. Et d'autre part, c'est des techniques qui permettent de tenir beaucoup de personnages. Et je pense que si je n'avais pas été euh, scénariste, auteur de, 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 de scénarios, je n'aurais pas pu tenir autant de personnages qu'il y a dans des orientales en même temps. Et ça, ce n'est pas forcément un talent, c'est aussi une technique, une manière de lâcher des personnages à un endroit, de les récupérer à un autre et de ne pas perdre le lecteur en faisant ces petits jeux-là. Quand vous êtes un screenwriter, vous développez la habitude de décrire les personnages dans as visual façon as possible. Vous voulez les montrer aux gens, vous voulez les faire que les gens puissent visualiser et les voir et les faire universels que tout can get a picture in their head. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing that you develop, another ability that you develop as a screenwriter, which it's not necessarily a talent, but it's a technique that you develop, is the ability to keep track of lots of characters and bring in lots of characters and, and keep them in your head and keep track of what they're doing and leave them to one side and then be able to go back to them and resume their part of the storyline. So those are the two main, uh, main elements of screenwriting that come through in novel writing. And I think they really do in the case of this book. And I am just waiting for the wonderful adaptation <laughs> to come along. So please. Me too. Please I am too. <laughs> It would be so wonderful. Do you know someone in Hollywood, Tina? Yes, I will. You have to talk. I'll be there. I'll we'll be all there. talk to all of our producer friends and make it happen. <laughs> Thank you both. And then just one final question for the two of you, which is around the fact that this particular award um, is quite special in that the nominations for the award come from libraries, uh, from public libraries all over Europe. Um, and it's one of the things that makes this award particularly exciting to me because I am so keen to find out what the readers have connected with. And this book is a book that obviously the readers have connected with. And um, can you both tell me a little bit about how libraries have shaped you and um, both as both as writers yourself and as readers? And, and Tina, I might come to you first. OK, well, um, I love the fact, first of all, that Disoriental was nominated by libraries in both France and the United States. I think that says so much about the broad appeal and the fact that it has the ability to touch your heart no matter where you're from or what your background is. 
Um, libraries for me have been incredibly important. Um, I used to spend just hours and days in the library always when I was growing up. And to me, what makes you a good writer and what makes you a good translator, even maybe more so, is having been a good reader because you absorb language and ways of speaking uh, as, as you read without even realizing it. Uh, you learn about so many different cultures and, and people and ways of life and ways of, you know, of conveying thought and emotion and action. So when it comes time to translate, when it comes down to deploy your arsenal of words on the page, the more range you have at your disposal, the better. You know, the more word choices you have to convey a particular French idea into English, uh, the more natural and more effective your translation can be. Mm, the, the, the art of reading is something we need to remember at all times. Yeah, that's Absolutely. wonderful. Thank you so much, Tina. And Negar? Pour moi, je dirais que les librairies, je suis tout à fait d'accord avec Tina. C'est exactement ce qu'elle vient de dire. C'est des fenêtres sur le monde. Et quand on rentre dans une librairie, on a, on a accès au monde et c'est un cadeau incroyable et un cadeau encore plus incroyable pour Tina et moi euh, d'avoir été choisis par les libraires parce que c'est quand même là où euh, le livre doit vivre. C'est le lieu de vie du livre. Nous, on a, on a fait notre travail et on l'a donné aux libraires et c'est eux qui le font vivre. C'est des passeurs d'histoire. Donc, c'est un grand honneur d'avoir été nominé. Uh, it's exactly similar thoughts. Um, books are windows to the world and libraries are a place where you can access all of this. Uh, it's, they're a gift uh, to us and it's an even greater gift to have been chosen um, by libraries because that is, those are the places where books live and where they can con continue to live. So we've done our work um, Nigar and I, we've done our work and we've given the book now to the libraries and then they are the, the guardian, the custodians and the guardians of, of the book and, 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 of what's, and of its story. So it's a great honor to be chosen by libraries. That's wonderful. And I think we are all especially aware in the current moment when we might not be able to get to the libraries of, of how important these spaces have have become for us. Um, and yes, I love that thought about the, that true thought about the fact that books live on in libraries. They they have a, a much longer lifespan and, and reach so many readers that way. And I think that uh, this book has obviously spoken to so many people and will continue to do so. So thank you so much, Nagar and Tina, for giving us your time today and um, for this fascinating discussion um, I really appreciate it thank you thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement wherever you're listening from we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time you can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.